Welcome to Thrive Lathrop Podcast. Here at our church, we believe that everyone can thrive. Make sure to subscribe to our channel and enjoy this life-changing message. Good morning, Thrive. Good morning, good morning. Happy New Year. And man, I didn't even know that. That was a surprise. I, I, I didn't even know that was happening. I knew my birthday's tomorrow, but I didn't know they were going to announce it. And so can we just give it up for our board and our staff? Just thank you all for giving me a cool happy birthday shout out. Love you. Love my church, man. That's pretty cool. I think we got like cookies and cupcakes and stuff. And man, we should do my birthday more often. I'm just saying, you know, uh, but I but I appreciate it. Um, can you believe it? I'm finally turning 30. Like for those of you that have known me for a while, like I- I've told my wife, I've been 30 since I was 18. I'm just going to be honest. Like I know I look like I'm 15, but I've been 30 since I've been 18 and I finally arrived. Somebody told me at first service, they said, Pastor Chris, it's all downhill from here, bro. And I was like, devil's a liar, dude. Like, that really? Like, I thought that was 40s, but apparently that's dirty, but okay. All right. But no, I'm grateful for this house and uh, excited for a new year. Um, and just thank you for the board, for the team, for doing that little birthday shout out. And then make sure at the end of service, you go get some sweets, some sugar, some cookies. Break all your diets in Jesus' name. You're fine. It's just the new year. You can work out tomorrow. You're good. All right. Well, hey, I'm excited for um, to preach. It's been a few weeks, and I'm excited to share first service off the hook. And so I believe if you're here today, it's not an accident. I believe God has you here for a reason. Whether you know that or not, that doesn't matter. I do believe God has you here for a reason. And um, I'm just excited for what we're going to be talking about today. I believe that the Holy Spirit's going to be moving even more. And um, hey, before we move on with the rest of the service, though, do me a favor. Let's welcome everyone online this morning. Come on, everybody watching on Facebook, YouTube. Thank you for joining us today. Super excited to have you online. Bummed you're not in the room. Make sure you get in the room next week. But we'd love to have you here. But super excited out of the way that you're here. For those that are here for the first time, thank you for starting your new year with us. I know that it's a busy time of the year, and a lot of us are kind of Focusing on getting our life right, right? New year, new me. That's kind of the new, that's the slogan most of the time. Um, But I'm grateful that you would choose this place. And I believe that here at our church, uh, God's doing some really cool stuff. I believe that God's really moving and we have a great people of this house. And so I'm excited that you're with us. And so we're going to jump right in. Um, Doing a new series today. We're going to do it for the month of January. It's called Welcome Home. Everybody say Welcome Home. And this is not just the series name, but this is actually our theme for the year. I felt like God told me and our team, he kind of, kind of spoke to us. He was kind of speaking to us on this theme of welcome home, meaning a place where God can call home, a place where people can call home. And, and, and I believe this with all my heart, that Jesus is getting us ready for something really profound this year. And I'm not just saying that it is the beginning of the year. And you know how people always just like post all the inspirational stuff in January. And then by March, no one's inspired anymore. Come on, let's be honest. Like, no, no, I really do. I believe this is the year where this becomes embodied, right? This idea of welcome home. I believe that God has created this place to be a home for him. I believe it's created this place, a home for broken and lost people in our city. And I believe this is a home for spiritual family. I believe that's the DNA of this house. And so we're going to talk about that for the next four weeks. And really kind of how it came about was uh, I was praying a few, probably like about a year ago, actually, not even a few months ago, a year ago, just kind of asking God, 
what our, our plan is. What, what does he want to do in the next four to five years at the church? And so I'm not going to give you the whole five-year plan because we'll be here forever. Um, but what I felt God wanted us to do in 2023, he, he just gave me these three words. And this is kind of really uh, where the, this theme kind of centered around is this idea of building the house. I feel like God said, we're going to build the house. Now, obviously, that's twofold. Number one, uh, we're building the house now. Like I've used, you see with the tarps up and the construction. And I'm so excited that this year, our construction project's going to be done and we're going to have a brand new updated building. And I believe that God's just going to fill it up with so many people who need to encounter Jesus. Amen. Really exciting times to be here. Really exciting. Uh, but, but secondly, it was also this idea of building the house invisibly, right? And we did that kind of with our Sandcastle series the last couple months. This idea of God building a house in us, a house together, uh, a house that you don't see, but a house that is real. Just kind of that idea of a structure, a home. And I believe that's why God wants us to focus on this theme this year. And so today, I'm excited to preach because I feel like this message at the core, I don't know about you, but there's times when uh, you read the Bible, but then there's times when the Bible grabs your heart. Come on now. Where just like a specific verse or a passage just holds on to you. And I believe that this verse is actually the verse of many verses, but one of the main verses of my life that has grabbed a hold of my heart. And I don't think I've ever preached it on a Sunday or even at a church. And so I'm excited to share. And I believe it's going to launch us into the new year. So come on, stand on your feet with me. Let's read into the word today. And I'm excited to jump in. And I think it's going to be some good stuff. Let's do it. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open it or you can go on the screen. Look up on the screen and that's good. Matthew 21 verses 12 through 15. And it says this. And Jesus entered the temple. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables, the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, verse 13, he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Everybody say prayer. prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Come on, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this theme, this year, what you're doing in this place. God, I pray that we would lock into your words. You would transform our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that you would just move in this place like you've already been moving. We give you the room. And we say, Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen, amen. Have a seat. Good stuff. Okay. And so I want to I just kind of share a little bit about this thought real quick that I have, and then we'll kind of go into some other points in a minute. But if you're taking notes for the message today, I want to talk about that we are a home for Jesus' presence. And really, that's not just a statement for us individually, but I believe that that is what God's calling this house. So let me explain a little bit. Um, it's really important to know what you're gifted in and what you're not gifted in, right? Come on, you can't do everything. Like, let's, let's be real. Like, and, and I think sometimes, like, immature people think, like, they can do everything. You ever meet that one person that feels like they can do everything? Like, let me give you a perfect example. Um, like, we have a, a Thrive group here, a small group, where they do softball. I don't know if you've got some softball people in the house. But they play softball, 
And all the time, the leader of our softball group, his name's Jared, he's the man, love him. He's always like, Pastor Chris, why don't you go play softball with us on Sunday nights? And I'm like, nope, because I'm trash. Like real talk, I'm not good at softball. I'm not going to go out there, and I'm not going to embarrass myself playing softball. And I know what you're thinking, like, Chris, it's softball. It's not even that bad. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Knowing me, I would, like, break my ankle just, like, walking. Okay? Like, like, so it's good to know, like, there's some sports you're good at. Come on, some of you are good at some sports. You played sports in high school, maybe some basketball, some football, some baseball, some soccer. And then there's some sports you're not good at. And I think it's okay for you and I to just say this now for everyone in the room, it's okay that you don't try the things you're not good at, okay? Like, like you just, and I'm, I'm meaning like sports-wise and gifting-wise, like it's cool. You don't have to do it, all right? I'm not good at sports. I'm just gonna be like, look at me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, I'm not good at sports. I'm not good at building things, all right? But listen, if you need to have a conversation, I'm your guy. I can out-talk any one of you. I can out-talk you I can, I can talk so much until you turn blue in the face or until I turn blue in the face. Both of us will turn blue in the face. I can talk and talk and talk, and I don't stop talking, and that's why my kids drive me nuts because they talk like me, okay? <laughs> Real talk. I'm, that's, I'm good at that, all right? I'm good at that. I love what this, uh, this quote that, that a guy named Craig Groeschel says. He's a pastor out in Oklahoma, and I, I say this a lot with our leadership team. He said this quote, which I think is so good. He says, if everything is important, nothing is. And so there needs to be priorities in your life. There needs to be things that you're good at, you're gifted at, and that you prioritize in your life, right? Not everything and everyone can matter. So I want to caveat that with this is I believe the message today is not only just for our hearts, but it's really to identify what I believe, not just today, but the series is going to identify what this house, what this church is really called to. And why that's so important is because we are not called to do everything, but we're just called to do what Jesus has called us to do. And so let me start it off by saying this. I believe that the number one priority of this house, the number one calling of this house, and it's okay that we're not like everyone else, but what we're gonna do here is we are gonna be a place that is centered, we are gonna be a church, a praying church that is centered around the presence of Jesus. That is the number one primary calling of this place. And not only of this place, but for me, this is why it's exciting, is because if I could be honest with you, that is the number one primary calling of my, my, my life. That's, that's the thing I live for. I live to teach people how to have a real relationship with Jesus. I live so that the reality of God would be in people's life. How does that happen most of the time? I love teaching and preaching about the presence of God and teaching and preaching pe to people how to pray. Amen. I love it. It's, I, I just love it. It's the thing that is in me. And and. Not that I think that completely matters. I'm not trying to make this selfish or about myself, but I think it's important you know the heart of your pastor because there's things that I'm gonna talk about and there's things I'm gonna say, not just now, but for the next, you know, however long I'm here, God willing, right? And, and the thing that is always gonna be a burden in my heart, the thing that I am called to the most is to be a man of prayer, to be a person that it prioritizes the presence of God. And I believe that expression would be lived out in the people of this house, that we would be a place that would be a home for Jesus's presence. Yeah. And this is why, this is my conviction, because I have learned that unless that becomes the main thing, unless it becomes the first thing, unless that becomes the one thing, all the other things don't flow well. Yeah. Matthew chapter 23, 
Matthew chapter 22, I believe, it says, right? Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know if you heard that verse, very popular verse. Someone goes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, what are, the, what, what are the greatest commandments? They're trying to like have a gotcha moment with Jesus. You know, like when you watch interviews and they're trying to like set someone up? That's what they're trying to do with Jesus, trying to get them in a gotcha moment. And they say, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? <laughs> He's going to say something dumb. That's what they're thinking. And Jesus is like, oh, bro, that's easy. Because it is. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength, and love your neighbors more than you love yourself or like you love yourself. Okay? And this is what I've learned is that oftentimes, especially in Western Christianity, today, modern Christianity, we've done a very good job in some ways, not completely, but we, we, we tend to lean on the side of loving our neighbor, but we don't know how to love the Lord wholeheartedly. And when the first thing's not done well, the second thing doesn't have power. And here's what I've learned. When you don't center your life, your church, your family around the presence of Jesus, Everything else, there's, there's power, it's, it's powerless. There, there's, no, there's not real life in it. Can I tell you the thing that, that, that keeps me up at night? In a good way, not like I'm at anxiety, not like that, but <laughs> the thing that keeps me up at night, the thing that I burn for, the thing that I dream about. I think back in the day it was, yeah, let's have a big church and, you know, or, or I want to preach to thousands. I think I shared with that a couple, a couple weeks ago. But the thing I burn about with the most is, man, I want to teach people really how to know Jesus and have a real relationship with him. The thing that I dream about is your kids coming to church on a Sunday and not just having a good time. But then when they go home that night, they're wanting you to pray with them in their room because they learned about the presence of God. The thing that I dream about is that you take the presence of God with you to your work and the next thing you know because of the life you live and the presence of God that's in your life and on your life, people's lives begin to change because when his presence gets in the picture, his presence changes everything. I'm believing for the day that more people go to the prayer meeting than Sunday church because I believe that it's in prayer meetings where we can really access God. Not that you can't do it here, but there's something different about getting in the face of Jesus. I'm believing that God would raise up a people that would not be centered around a system or an ideology or a philosophy, but it would be centered around a man named Jesus, that their whole life would be centered around him, and when he is at the center, his presence is there also. Amen. That's the thing that I burn for. And so because of that, we're going to talk about it all the time. And I don't think I'm burning for it because it's just my personal thing. No, I believe it is absolutely scriptural and biblical. And why do I say that? Because here you find in this passage, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus going into a temple. And what does he do? He starts flipping tables and chairs. And I want you to imagine this. Imagine Jesus showing up today. And he just shows up in church. And he's not coming in like a first-time visitor and checking the kids in and and getting some coffee and having a first time seeing. No, no, Jesus, imagine Jesus coming in and he comes in and he's just flipping the connect table and the coffee table and the tables in the lobby and he's messing up all the chairs and I know that's your seat, but he's messing it up anyways. And he's just making a mess. And this is what he's doing. And he's, he, he's flipping tables around and, 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 and what you find though, Here's the interesting thing. What you find, though, in this passage is that this isn't the first time Jesus does this. And so I want to break this down a little bit. How many know that everything Jesus does is important? Amen. Right? That's a safe theological, biblical assumption. 
Jesus walks on water, it's important. Jesus heals someone, that's important. Jesus resurrects from the dead, that's a, that's a big one, that's important, you know? Everything Jesus does is important. Okay, Jesus lives for 33 years. If you didn't know this, Jesus lives for 33 years. From the day he was born till the age of 30, he did not do any ministry. He was hidden, he was kept away, no one really knew about him. We don't know if there was miracles. We don't know if there wasn't miracles. He was completely hidden. At 30 years old, Matthew chapter 3 tells us he gets baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. If you didn't know they were cousins, now you know, okay? John the Baptist baptizes him. Matthew chapter 4, he goes into the desert. The devil tempts him. He overcomes it by the power of the Spirit. Matthew chapter 5, he starts his ministry. He starts laying hands on the sick. He starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he starts teaching and preaching. And so Jesus lives till 33 years old. He dies on the cross at 33. So Jesus only does ministry, only does the works of God on humanity that we know of for three years, okay? That's a little bit over a 1,000 days. I want you to understand this. A little bit over a 1,000 days. Why is this important? Because everything he did in those 1,000 days, important, right? Right. What does it mean when God does it twice in his lifetime? Not just once, but twice. And what you find is that in the Bible, this story of Jesus going in and, cha- and, and flipping tables and, and, and flipping the money-changing tables and the people who are selling animals and offerings in the temple. He doesn't just do this once, he does it twice. He does it in John chapter two, in the beginning of his ministry, before everything even starts, he goes to the temple, he flips all the tables. And then at the end of his ministry, the week that he dies, this happens on Monday, Tuesday, of the week that he dies, he goes in and he's flipping tables. And I don't know if you remember back in the day when you used to go to school, math, parentheses, some of you are like, no, it's okay. You failed algebra. It's cool. But what parentheses means is that, you know, it makes it really important and a priority. And I want you to understand, the parentheses of Jesus' life, he started by cleaning the temple, and he ended it by cleaning the temple. Why is that important? Because what you and I have to understand is that when Jesus went in and cleaned that temple, he had every authority to clean that temple and clear out that temple because it was his temple. Because when he spoke it in the Old Testament, he gave the instructions. Jesus was there when God gave the instructions to build the temple. So, right, when God told Moses, build the tabernacle, Jesus was there because he's Jesus. He's God. He's from the beginning to the end. He's always been there. He's always going to be there. He's never going anywhere. That's who Jesus is, right? He's Alpha. He's Omega. It's what the song we sang, right? He's the same God. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Abraham, right? He's the God of David. He's the God of Moses. He's the God of Solomon. He was there. Jesus was there. He's the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the God that's going to happen in the future. He's the God of the past. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the author and finisher of our faith. That's what the Bible says. And so when he gave the instructions to build the temple to David, he was there. When he gave the instructions to build the temple to Moses, he was there. When he gave the instructions to build the temple to Solomon, he was there. When he gave the instructions to rebuild the temple to Zechariah and Haggai in the Old Testament, he was there. And now Jesus is in the flesh in the New Testament, and the temple does not look like what he told them to do. Come on, that's good. Therefore, what God will do is he will go in 
and move anything he needs to move and flip everything he needs to flip and change everything he needs to change. Why? Because if it's not functioning in the design that God designed it for, then he's going to make it go back to what its original design was. And you know what I've learned? We in the Western church culture, we love cookie-cutter, fluffy, cotton candy Jesus. Right? And, and, and yes, he's loving and he's kind and he's gracious and he's merciful. Absolutely. If it wasn't for Jesus' love and grace and mercy, I would not be here. However, what's really important to understand is the same Jesus that loves you in your brokenness and your sin and he's there for you and he's kind and he's gracious also is the same Jesus who goes up into a spot heated and will flip some tables because it's not right. And what I have learned is so many of us want the Jesus with the blessings and the flavor and the favor and the mercy and the grace, but we don't want the Jesus that will come and flip the tables that aren't supposed to be there in our lives. And what we have done is we have given a generation a cookie cutter version of the gospel that does not allow Jesus to come and challenge the things that are in us to get rid of the things that are inside of us so that we can have a deeper relationship with them. So what begins to happen is with all that unnecessary, unbiblical theology, we have a shallow relationship with God and that shallowness does not last when the storm comes because it's coming. Not because I'm a prophet, not because it's bad out there, because it is, but life is life, and sometimes life sucks, let's be honest. All of you survived all your cousins and family the last two months for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Y'all are like, Jesus, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. This has been rough, right? It's hard. And the desire of God is that you would be sustained in him through any situation. Through any storm. That's what Hebrews says. We have an anchor. And so Jesus, sometimes what he needs to do is come in like he did in this temple. Okay? He's to come in like he did in this temple and flip some tables and chairs. Not just physically. I'm not just talking about the physical church now. I'm talking about your heart. What are some things in your heart that are not supposed to be there that you need to allow Jesus to flip and turn to get rid of? so that you can prioritize the presence of God once again. You want a New Year's resolution? I'll give you a New Year's resolution. Learn to fall in love with Jesus and stay in love with him for the next 30, 40 years. Learn to fall in love with the presence of God again. Learn to have a relationship with Jesus, not because you need him, but because you want him. Because that's what we've done. We've told a generation that, hey, as long as you come to church when you can and you read your Bible every now and then and you check off the boxes and it, and it makes you feel good, the spirituality and the vibes of the worship team because you know it's all about vibes and, and, and all about the mood and, and all about that. And as long as that's good, you're gonna be fine. But family, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a man and his name is Jesus who died for you, who rose again on the third day, who loves you dearly and wants all of you and not some of you because in him you actually find life. And when you say yes to God, you are saying yes to him, but you're saying no to yourself and you now become his. And when you become his, he makes a home in you. And when he makes a home in you, his presence rests in you. And that, my friend, is when transformation begins to take place. That, my friend, is when freedom begins to take place. That, my friend, is when healing and, and all that God wants to do. But we have to allow him to be the center of our life. 
I love that Jesus is not scared to get down and dirty with us and get rid of our tables that aren't supposed to be there. Because here's the reality, which is my first point, is that Jesus will not let anything get in the way of his presence. I want you to know that. I want you to know coming today and and for your life, for your family, for, for you, for this place, for this church, I believe that God would want to make this place a home. And here's my thing. Like, I, like I, I love people. Like, if you know me, like, some of you know me. If you don't know me, it's okay. Like, stick around. But, like, right, try to, try to be here for, like, the next two to three months. Like, just try it, okay? Like, you'll get to know me. I talk a lot, okay? But if you know me, you know how much I love people. You know how much I love families, you know, you, you, you know the things that I talk about and, and the things that, and like, we care. We care about all that. We do. Here, here's my point. This, this is the thing that, that, that God would convict me. What does it matter? I'm just talking about the place. I'm just talking about the church, and then I'll get specific. What does it matter if we create a home for everyone else, but God feels like he's not welcomed? God forbid that any visitor feels like they can be here, but God feels like he has no room. I won't do that. And this is what I've learned, just me in particular. When I want God to do something in my life, at least in my context, right? I'm a pastor, so I want God to do something in my church. I'm like, God, I want my church to be a praying church, for example. God comes back to me and says, are you willing to be a praying man? Are you willing to prioritize my presence? I love what Leonard Ravenhill says. He says, a sinning man never prays and a praying man rarely sins. You want to talk about the distractions and the stuff and the junk and the chaos of your life, the habitual sin cycle that you keep going through. Every New Year's, you make a New Year's resolution and you can't even make it to the middle of February because there's not an iron in you. It's okay. It's not your fault. The problem is you don't have the presence of God to sustain the things that you know you're supposed to do because he's the only one that can transform your heart. But the only way that that happens, family, is you got to let him move some tables and change some stuff. You got to let him in and get anything that's in the way out of the way. See, you have to understand the historical context of this. When people would go to the temple, it was their form of worship. In the Old Testament, we read about this. That back in the day, when you were in the Old Testament, the only way you can worship God was two ways. One, you had to be part of a special family lineage. They were known as Levites or priests. You had to be related to someone. Or, which even in this case, it's both the case, you had to, if you wanted to worship, bring an animal to kill as a sacrifice of your sins, your offerings, whatever, and when you killed that animal, now you're able to worship God. This is the beauty of Jesus and the gospel. It's what the New Testament writer talks about. We now no longer have access to the Father through the blood of goats and rams. We have access to the Father through the blood of the blameless lamb named Jesus. Therefore, now we have access to God. And we don't have to sacrifice an animal or the blood of an animal because Jesus' sacrifice was enough. But in this context, Jesus has not died yet. Therefore, people are still going to the temple. And this is what they were doing. The leadership of the day were allowing people who were money changers and people who were selling animals to sell them to people who came to the temple 
for two, three, four times the amount to manipulate them and make a profit. Let me put it in more of a modern term. Have you ever been to a theme park? And you're in line for an hour in the hot sun and that Dasani water bottle is 650. That's hell, I'm just gonna be honest. Um, I, I riot, everything in me rages. <sighs> Cause I'm cheap, I'm just gonna be real. I'm like, I'm like the guy that's like, we're getting one for the whole family. Water fountain, water, water fountain, water fountain. Nope, it touched your lips, you're out. You don't get no more water for the rest of the day. Come on, bro, be real. I know I am, right? Save the water bottle. We're saving the water bottle all day. There's a, there's a water fountain outside the line. We'll refill it there. You think I'm laughing? Ask my wife. <laughs> That's what they're doing. They're selling animals for sacrifice because people didn't come ready they're selling it out of inconvenience. They're making a profit. And then what they're doing, the Old Testament explains that if we're gonna sacrifice an animal, it has to be pure and blameless. They're selling deformed animals because it doesn't matter. And people are buying these things. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem, not once, twice. And he actually, in this quote where he says, my, 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 my temple, my home should be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah and he's quoting Jeremiah. He is declaring in that moment Old Testament prophecy coming to pass. And he's saying, guys, what are you doing? What have you made this? And, and I wonder if that's the same question that God would ask me. Have I made Christianity something that it's not? Have I made God's presence something that it's not? Have I made my relationship with Jesus something that it's not? When God sees me in my walk and my relationship with God, does it break his heart or does it actually welcome him? And I can only know that. No one else can know that. It doesn't matter how high you jump, no matter how many churches you go to, no matter how many small groups, how many humanitarian efforts do you do, no matter how much you give, only God knows who you really are on the inside. And the truth is, is that that convicts me and that challenges me because I ask myself, have I let anything get in the way of his presence and what he really wants to do in me and in my life? Have I allowed money changers? Have I allowed these tables where I'm sacrificing false animals, broken animals, not the fulfilled, the, fulfilled, the full offering I'm supposed to get? Am I, am I making sense? Like, Because that's what we do, right? We, we give to God only what what's convenient for us and, and we only give Jesus part of our hearts and as long as it helps us out and most scholars believe this, that the reason why Jesus got crucified that week was because he turned the money tables over and those people that were selling animals and he shooed them out of the temple and he kicked them out. Because what was happening is those people selling those items were giving some of their money, they were, they were giving a kickback to the religious Pharisees and leaders and Sadducees of the day. And because Jesus affected their pocketbook, we got to kill him. And then I think, man, Western Christianity has had a notorious habit of making things more about money instead of about Jesus. We have made a notorious habit of making things about what we want from God instead of what God wants from us. We have taught people that relationship and discipleship is all about Jesus taking care of you and not about you following Jesus, saying no to yourself and saying yes to him.
And have we put other things in the place that were supposed to be the priority, which is his presence? But God's kind. And you know what God's kindness looks like? Him flipping tables. I want you to know that when you read this, it does not contradict the character of God. No, no, it makes perfect sense. Because the Jesus that I know will have to come in and flip some tables and chairs if he needs to. And so let me just break down. How do I do this? How, how, do, I, how do I center my life around the presence of God? How do I make the presence of God the priority of my life? How do I do that? How do I put Jesus in the right place? Just give you some few steps. They're not super complicated, but I think they're deep. Because I think it's going to really require all of you in some ways. Number one, the first step is invitation. And I know, and I know that sounds funny. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. Like, for some of you, I don't know how many of you worked out this week. Good job. You made it. Just keep going next week, right? You know what I'm saying? But that's like me going to the gym week one. And I think everyone knows this. Like, everyone's been part of that season where you go to the gym, the beginning of the new year, and you're like, I'm going to get super fit. I'm going to fit into that jacket that I got married in or whatever, you said, whatever, whatever the goal was. And that's like me going to the gym and asking everyone that's working out, do you want to get in shape? And the obvious question is like, yeah, that's why I'm here, bro. Right? So it's kind of funny that I'm saying the first step to people who are going to church about prioritizing the presence of God is you actually want God. The first step, if you want to allow God to prioritize the presence of God in your life, if you want to prioritize the presence of God in your heart, if you want to center your life, your family, your church, anything around the presence of God, the first step is invitation. Why do I say that? Even though it sounds funny because, right, we're in church. Obviously, all of you here want God. But let's be honest. Let's be, let's be real for a second. You know and I know your body can be somewhere your heart isn't. So the first step is do you want Jesus? Do you really want him? Not want something from him, not want him to do something for you, but do you want him? And for those that are like, man, that's a weird new concept. Can I tell you? Maybe you're not a Christian or following Jesus, and that's cool. I'm glad you're here. That God is the greatest thing that would ever happen to you in your life. There is no one like him. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one that will heal your heart and set you free. There is no one that will calm the storm of your mind and your life like him. There is no one who will redeem and restore the things that no one else can, that, that the pain of your past and the brokenness and the shame and the guilt, there's, there's no one like him. But the way it works is you got to want him. You got to want him. <clears throat> yes, he wants you. So he starts the relationship because without him, you ain't getting nowhere. But it's all about him and you got to want him. You gotta have a desire and a passion for Jesus and his presence. I think a lot of us have a passion and a desire to do Christian stuff. But some of us, very few of us, have a passion and desire for God. I want God. I want God in my life. 
I want God when I'm going to work. I want God in my lunchtime. I want God with my family. I want God when I wake up. I want God when I'm going to sleep. Call me obsessive. That's what it is, family. Because if you understood how much this man loves you, there's, I don't have enough lifetimes to give to him to pay him back. I would do it again and again and again. Because you don't know what I've been through. And you don't know what he rescued me from. And so there's a burning passion and a desire. First step, I want Jesus. And for some of us, that's an easy one to answer. I think most of us probably do in this room. But, but I got to ask the question. The first step, do you really want him? The second step is then he shows up. He visits. There's a visitation. And, and, and I want you to understand, like, the way God shows up, he's going to show up in your life the way you need him to show up, not the way you want him to show up, okay? Okay? I don't know about you, but I have certain rules in my house. When people come over, you got to do certain things. I mean, it's not too much. Like, let's be honest. I'm Hispanic, so there's not too many rules. Let's be real. But like, there's some, and it's totally appropriate for you to have rules in your house, right? You're not allowed to do this. You're allowed to, you got to take your shoes up, right? You got your rules. You, everybody got their rules. Don't use this, this, whatever. Don't go to the bath. Don't do this bathroom or don't go to this room or everybody's got the rules. Here's what we do. We try to make rules for Jesus on how he's going to visit us. The problem with that is it's not your house. It's his. Oh, you didn't get that. No, no, no. You're trying to put regulations on Jesus, what belongs to Jesus. That's like me telling you, you can only drive your car this time, this time. You can only do this in your house, this year. That's what we do because we think us, we think us belongs to us. It's not true. When you give your heart to God, it belongs to him. When you said yes to Jesus, when you said yes to get saved, when you asked him in your heart, when you asked to get you gave your life to him. You lost all your rights, family. No more rights. No more rights. But I just want that. Nobody cares. Real talk. This isn't a, you lost. There's no democracy when it comes to the kingdom. There's a democracy here in America. That's awesome. But in the kingdom, it's Jesus. And he's love and he's kind and he's merciful. He's like no king that would ever be in your life. But when he shows up, he's going to do it his way. And here's the beautiful thing. When he shows up, he wants it his way. And he doesn't mind doing the heavy lifting to get it his way. See, here's the deal. He's not going to follow your rules. He doesn't also need you to help with the couch either. He'll move the couch by himself. He's God. He just needs you to get out of the way. He needs you to get out. So I want to explain. When you really get an encounter, a visitation from God, when God really brings, I want to explain this. And everyone who's had a real encounter knows this. When God really encounters you, yes, it's, it's amazing. There's the presence of God and you're, right, the, the boogers and, the, and you're weeping and right, all the good stuff. And, and you feel the presence. But also he comes in and he starts turning tables. He comes in and he starts challenging your life. He comes in and he starts flipping things that aren't supposed to be there. He comes in and he starts getting rid of shame and getting rid of guilt and getting rid of sin and getting rid of condemnation and getting rid of lies. Why? Because that's what the gospel does. When he comes and visits, he's going to shift some things and he's going to change some things. He's going to come like a wrecking ball, man, and he's going to make it his home. Why? Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to make a home in you and I. 
First step, you got to have invitation. You got to want God to come. Second step, you got to be ready when God comes. Here's how you get ready. Get out of the way. Get out of your head. Get out of your emotions. Let him just do what he wants to do in your life. Let him speak, even if it hurts. I know you really like that couch, that ugly, nasty, orange couch. Everybody knows that one piece of furniture at that one cousin's house that's like, why is that there? God has a couch that he wants to get rid of, a table that doesn't belong, a thing that is getting in the way of my relationship with Jesus, prioritizing the presence of God. What do you got to do? God, go ahead. And God, God, right, God's going to come in and he's going to be like, man, I, let's get rid of that couch. Like he's going to be all smiley about it. And you're going to be like, but God, you don't know what I did on that couch. You don't know how much that couch costs me. You know how long it's been there. Like, there's so many dust bunnies under that couch. Don't look at that couch. And God's like, we're going to get rid of it. Either we're going to get rid of it, or I'm going to keep coming back until you get rid of it. But I'm not going to make a home in you until we get rid of it. That's what he does. He comes when he visits. And he starts to shift things. And then here's the last one, which I think is the hardest, is habitation. God decides to make a dwelling place in you, in your church, in your family. And I think as Christians, we're addicted to visitation, but we don't want habitation. I'm going to say that again. We're addicted to visitation, but we don't want habitation. We're addicted to conferences and camps and moments and Sunday services, but we don't want God on Tuesday. Can I tell you that God is more interested in the boring parts of your life than the epic moments of your life? God wants to be there in the mundane. That's relationship. He doesn't want to just visit you every now and then. He wants to be with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to be around you. He wants to be around your kids. He wants to be in your home. He wants to be in your car. He wants, he wants to be with you. He wants to inhabit. And that's the calling that I believe God would call us to, could we be a people that would let the presence of God, presence of God inhabit us every single day? Our families, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. Would we make a home for Jesus? What does it matter if everyone else feels like it's home, but we have not made a home for the presence of God? How dare us say we're Christians and followers of God? If you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of God, you're off the hook on this statement. We'll talk later. For you that are saying, hey, I've been in church, I've been a Christian, I got saved in 1970, whatever, and got baptized, whatever, whatever, Cool. Does God rest in you? Does the presence of God prioritized in you? Or have we been playing so many games that God can't really be with us? And the crazy thing about Jesus is he'll keep coming. He'll keep coming. Because he doesn't just show up to the temple once. He shows up to the temple twice. He'll keep coming until we get it right. Just get out of the way. I believe today the question that I believe God would ask us in this place is what does Jesus need to overturn in your heart? Because in the Bible, I love that last verse, it says, check it, Jesus cleared the temple, Jesus healed the sick, Jesus did all that he needed to do, and it says two things, the children that were around started worshiping God and the Pharisees that didn't like him became indignant and hardened in their heart. Can I tell you there is only two reactions to the presence of Jesus? 
It either leads you to the place of devotion and worship, or it leads you into a spirit of religion, and you end up missing what God's doing in the room. My family, I don't want to do that. Me personally, I don't want to be in a place where the presence of God is, but be indignant toward Jesus. I want my life to be wholehearted, completely open, available to him. That means, are there things in my life that I need Jesus to overturn? Only you know that, and only you can answer that question. Stand your feet with me. Thank you again for tuning into our podcast. For more info, please visit our website at thrivelathrop.com. Have an amazing rest of your week.